Let's go ahead and just pray. Mighty God, thank you for this day of fellowship. Thank you for my brothers and my sisters who are here today to worship uh, for you. It's all about you, God. Open up our hearts, open up our minds today to receive the word. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And the church said, amen. Amen. Today, uh, you know, a lot of times I like to go back and teach foundational things. And the reason being is because if we... if if we're not taught foundational things all the time, we, we end up losing it. Have any of us, uh, you know, like when you went to Spanish class when you were in school, you took two years of Spanish class, but now you're, you haven't used it since, and now you barely know anything, right? And so what I like to do is I like to go to foundational things and reteach foundational things because if we don't hear it often and all the time, a lot of times we start to lose it, and then we start to kind of get lost in, in what we believe in. We start questioning our faith. We start questioning certain things. So I'm going all the way back to the very basic of, um, of Christian and uh, Hebrew theology of oneness. What is oneness? Why is it important? And what are the contrasting uh, definitions of, of how we view oneness? So we obviously know that there's a few opposing theories out there that have to do with oneness. In the theological world or in the scholarship world, we, we're not known as oneness. We're not called oneness Pentecostals, uh, but we are called Unitarianism. Okay, well, what does that mean? What is Unitarianism? Well, a Unitarian is someone who believes in one God that is indivisible. Okay, that he cannot be separated into persons or personalities, which would be the contrasting uh, definition or theology or, or idea of the Trinitarian philosophy. Now, we have to be very careful and we have to understand what Unitarianism. You may be seated, by the way. We'll start getting the Bible verses after I, I lay down a little bit of a foundation. So, what is Unitarianism? We have to separate ourselves from the other religions that believe in Unitarianism. So, we have another a group or, or section of people they're known as Jehovah Witnesses they are Unitarian in belief they deny what the Trinity has to say um, I'm not sure if anybody here has ever dealt with a Jehovah raise your hand if you've ever talked to a Jehovah Witness right yeah woo fun um, they come they knock on your door um, you know bless them they're trying to do a work for their kingdom and uh, and uh, they're, they're, they put their, their actions where their faith is the, the problem is that their theology, once you start talking to them, once you start understanding what they believe in, there's some, uh, there's some major hiccups uh, in their theology and what they believe in. But they do believe that Jehovah is the one God. That's something that we can relate to. They do believe that there is only one God, and they do deny what the Trinity has to say about who God is. And so that's actually a speaking point. If you ever want to talk to a Jehovah Witness, that like, yeah, I, I actually deny the Trinity as well. And they're like, and you're a Christian? Oh, my goodness. And you can actually start talking to them about that. Now, where their philosophy starts um, uh, differing with ours is that they believe that Michael the Archangel ceased to exist in the Old Testament and became Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So that's where we can, uh, that, that's where we start having real problems. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is uh, God manifested in flesh, and how they derive to that point, I have no idea, because the New Testament is full of who Jesus Christ is, but that goes into another thing that we can talk about later, their word that they use, if you have a New World Translation, um, that is a specific Bible dedicated, created by the watchtower, uh, or the person who created the watchtower, or the awake um, 
uh, magazines and content, and they are the ones who are pushing out that Bible, which is actually, if you ask any scholar um, who, who interprets, who transmits, and who, um, who understands Greek, that it is a grotesque uh, version of the Bible, that it is, it is actually heresy in the scholarship world. And uh, when you start using that H word, heresy, uh, it's, it's not a pretty thing. And that's, but they will actually promote that their word is the most accurate version, except they don't list their translators. They don't list the people who, who did the interpreting. They don't list the, the manuscripts that they used in order to interpret the word of God that they're using. So just remember, if you see a New World Translation or you're reading out of the New World Translation, uh, throw it away. Or just keep it on the shelf for uh, study purposes if you ever want to, be- or not believe what they believe in, but see what they believe in. And, uh, and to give you an example, everybody knows the, the most common verse in there, uh, which is John 1 and 1 and how it reads in, the new, in the, the new World Translation. It says, in the beginning was God, uh, or in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, or the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. They actually put a there. And then they put a lowercase g, a God, because they believe, for some reason, they believe in multiple gods in the sense of many demigods. And uh, that's something that their, uh, the New World Translation says. If you ever see it in their Bible, it's actually pretty shocking. There's, and then many other scriptures are changed for that reason. So let's go back into Unitarian distinctions. Let's talk about our Unitarian distinction. Our Unitarian distinction, we are known as Oneness Pentecostals. Oneness Pentecostal, what does that mean? Well, it means that we believe that Jesus Christ is God manifested in flesh and that God in the Old Testament is indivisibly one. Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, we see Deuteronomy 6 and 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The word one there in Hebrew is achaid, and achaid literally means one. It's something that you are taught when you're a child. When you're a child and you're learning the numbering system, what's the first number that comes up on our numbering system besides zero? It's one. Well, that's how you say it in Hebrew, achide, one. This is one of the first things that their children learn um, in Hebrew, what it is achide. So when we see that our God is one, we see indivisibly one. What does it mean? Well, it literally means one. It cannot mean more than one thing. Um, a lot of times people will say, well, of course it only means one, but this is one stand, but it has three legs um, in order to support it. So it's, it's obviously more than just one thing. It's, it's complex. Well, that's, that's not what the word of God actually is talking about when it starts talking about who Jesus Christ is. So let's talk about the contrasting theory, which is the Trinitarian theory. And let's talk about how the Unitarian theory, or the Oneness Pentecostalism theory, to be specific to us, um, and the Trinitarian theory interact with each other. Both theories attempt to explain the distinctions of who God is, okay? We have to understand in the New Testament there are distinctions. That what? What are the distinctions? Well, they're the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We understand them to be God, okay? And But the the issue is, and the thing that we have to accountable, or account for, is how are they one? 
if there is a distinction in the New Testament about who the Father is, who the Son is, and who the Holy Spirit is. If they're just one and that one is Jesus, then why have the separation? Why have the distinction in titles? What's the purpose of it? Why don't we just call everything Jesus? It's a very simple concept, but it's actually um, pretty hard to explain sometimes. And a lot of times people get lost in what they believe in. Most Trinitarians or most Unitarians, we, we understand a very surface level or shallow level of understanding of what Unitarianism or one is Pentecostalism uh, is and what Trinitarianism is. Uh, and, and it's a very shallow conversation that we have. We, we typically most of the time just say Deuteronomy 6.4 or we say, um, you know, 1 Timothy uh, 3.16. And, uh, and then... We, we think that's all it's, it's going to take in order to persuade a Trinitarian or able to get by with the conversation until you meet someone who knows what they're talking about. Because Trinitarians believe in those scriptures as well. They believe Deuteronomy 6.4 with all of their heart. They believe that Jesus Christ is God. A lot of people don't understand that. They, they believe that he's the, the son of God. And believe it or not, we believe that he is the son of God and that Jesus Christ is is distinct from the Father in the sense of his purpose, in his, incarnal, or in his carnality, in his incarnation. Um, how they are different is what is explained. Trinitarians believe that this is the major difference in all of theology um, when we talk about the Son of God in the context of the Trinity, that the Son was in eternity's past with the Father during creation. Okay, what does that mean? He was a distinct person. Uh, if we could go to... Uh, John 17 and 5, real quick, and I'll, I'll show you why and, and how they come to this, uh, that Jesus Christ was in creation. Oh, now, Father, glorify thou me with thine, with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Okay, that's a pretty strong scripture that suggests that what? That Jesus Christ was in the beginning with the Father, right? It's pretty strong. Um, I'll just read it one more time. The, the, the highlight here, it says, before the world was. Glorify which I had with thee before the world was. Well, the, this, is, this is one of the Trinitarian stronghold scriptures of why they believe that Jesus Christ existed in the beginning with the Father. Now, there's also other scriptures that suggest that Jesus Christ was in the creation process, right? That all things were created by him and for him, through him, for what? The purpose of being the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. So we have to contend with theology. We have to contend with what the Bible has to say and have an explanation to all questions, especially since in reality we're the new kids on the block, uh, per se. Not in the sense of uh, understanding oneness, but how we present oneness, because it's not, the idea of oneness is an old thing, it, it's been around since the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.4, we understand oneness, but once the incarnation of Jesus Christ came, uh, it kind of muddied the waters on who Jesus Christ is. Now, I want you to think that you are, um, you know, a disciple or a person uh, back in the day. You see Jesus Christ, he is on his knees and he is praying, right? I'm a disciple looking at that or a person looking at that. Jesus Christ is praying to God. What is the first thing that has to happen in prayer? Well, 
there has to be an individual praying to another individual, right? So how does a disciple or how does somebody interpret that from back in the day who doesn't have the revelation of what's going on? Well, they would interpret it quite the same as somebody, um, you know, somebody just looking, someone looking at you praying. Like, oh, that person is praying to God who happens to be, you know, the deity or the person that I believe in um, in heaven. And if I do not have Old Testament background foundation, so if I am a Gentile and I am somebody who has no idea who Jesus Christ is, if I have no ident- or no, um, n- no ba- uh, foundation of the Jewish uh, foundation, the Jewish laws of one God, and I'm coming from a polytheistic background, how am I going to comprehend what is going on here? How am I going to understand that? So their perception is very different. So that is why, actually, if you ever look, that is why the nation that was saved first was who? It was, it was Jerusalem. It was the Hebrews. It was, um, it was people with foundation. Matter of fact, if you ever look up the old churches, the people who were running the old churches were mostly Jewish people. That's why the disciples, the people who laid the foundation of the new church, they were Jewish in, um, in what they believed in first. Uh, they, they were Hebrew. Why? Because they had the absolute foundation of who Jesus Christ was. And we know that in at the end of Luke, it says that Jesus opened up um, the, the disciples' minds to, to understand who he was and, and all of that. But but they had the core concepts down that Jesus Christ could not be separated as a distinct person in definition um, from the Father, uh, who God is. Now, we have to understand that term as well, the Father. What is the Father? How do we identify, uh, how, do we, how do we rectify the situation of, of we have a father and a son that has to distinct two people, that, that shows two different people, especially since the son was on earth praying to the father. I hear this excuse a lot, or not an excuse, but this explanation, where it says, well, the father and the son, you can be a father, you can be a son, you can be all of these things, right? They're just titles. We, we hear that all the time. It's one of the most easily refuted things that you can say to a, to a theologian. It says, yeah, that's, that's fine, but I'm a father and I have a son and we're two different people. So understand that that's, that's what you're going to get. And then they're going to say this. They're like, just like when Jesus was the son and he was praying to the father, that would show two different people, right? Because if he was the father, then he would just pray to himself. Um, and, and, you know, we understand from a oneness perception that, that what he was doing, that he was begotten, that he was created, which is what... We're going to be going into next is how the the son is in relation to the father when he was incarnated in the flesh. So let's just do some Old Testament background. The the Old Testament Unitarian. It's a monotheism. It's strict monotheism. And we have you know our very first scripture, which would be Deuteronomy six and four. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Um, we have Isaiah uh, forty three eleven. I am the Lord beside me. There is no savior. I will also praise you with, with the harp for your faithfulness, O oh my God. And I will sing praises to the Holy One of Israel. That's Psalm 71, 22. See now that I, even I, am He. There is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. He is all by himself. He's the one who kills. He's the one that makes alive. He is the one that creates. You are 
you are a great or for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Psalms 86 and 10. David had a great understanding of who God was and um, and understanding that he was completely sovereign in the way that he in the way that David wrote that you make alive that you're the creator, that you do all these things, that, and you do these wondrous things alone. You are God. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you. Not beside you, besides you. There, there is no God whatsoever. You are the only God that we know of. Now, we have to understand at the very beginning, the foundation of who God was, there was Abraham. Abraham was the first, it was the first, I guess, modern man in the Old Testament to know the one true God when, when, he, um, when he exposed himself to Abraham. Why? Because in that time period, they were believing multiple gods. Uh, they were polytheists. Poly in the Greek um, meaning many. Uh, theist meaning God. They, they were polytheists. They believed in many gods. Uh, the God of rain, the God of their crop, the, the, the God of the, the sea, the, the God of the sky, the, you know, the God of the heavens, um, you know, the God of that held the axis on the earth. They, they had all kinds of gods, no matter what they were called, they just had all kinds of gods that they prayed to. Why? Because it's, I don't want to say it's human nature to, to seek supernatural things because we come from a supernatural body, um, you know, who, who is God. We were created, we were shaped, we were breathed in the breath of life and so there's going to be a natural emptiness to where we go towards something to believe in that's why we have so many religions that's why we have so many people believing in in a lot of nonsense today that's why people are so open to so many different things because i think that there's a void in people's lives that that needs to be filled and if it's not filled with god they're going to fill it with something else or another god it's really that easy um that's why people are so easily uh, persuaded by false religion because and, and that's why it's so important for the church to take action um, on you know the situation where people want to believe in something because you know Jehovah Witnesses they in the Mormons we'll, we'll talk about them too they they work hard for what they believe in you see them on bikes wherever they go right you're like oh there's them well they they talked to about a hundred people that day how many people did you talk to like that's right? Like compare yourself a little bit. They believe and they work for what God believes in. And they are spreading something that is actually not biblical. Yet their movement just in general is about twice the size of our movement. And how they do it? By door knocking, by getting out and talking to people about Jesus. Because people, it doesn't matter if you talk to a hundred people, if you save one person or one person believes now what you believe in, they're now coming to church. They're, they did their job. They talk to 10,000 people, guess what? Their church just, just raised um, to, to 100 people. That's a 100-person increase. It's, uh, you know, so it, we have to take advantage of uh, really the zealousness and uh, putting our faith at, in works. Um, so anyways, the oneness of God and, and understanding the, the oneness of God. Okay, my glory... I will not give to another, Isaiah 88, or 48 and 11. Uh, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. That's Isaiah 44 and 6. 
6. So from these scriptures, we can clearly see that God has professed himself to be what? One, numerically one. Besides him, there is no other. There is no savior except for him. He is the only true God. Um, and, and this is the Old Testament foundation. In Romans, the, if you ever read the history of Romans and what happened in Rome, the Caesar, during a certain period of time, kicked out all the Jewish people, including the people who were at the, the Church of Rome. And when they did that, they were gone for about 10 years before the other Caesar was like, let, the, let them in, the, the guy who took over. You can let them back in. And when, those, when, when Rome was established, it was established by Jewish foundations, Jewish leadership, oneness leadership. And when they came back after that 10 years, the Gentiles who they were training up and that they were, um, and that they were you know, having church with, when they came back and they took over, uh, or when they took over after the Jews were kicked out, their theology had changed after 10 years. And guess what happened in the Church of Rome? And it was basically the downfall of Rome was the fact that they kicked out the Jewish people once they came in. And they tried to be like, no, that's not right. That's not, that's not foundational. That's not the oneness of God. That's not orthodox Christianity as we're teaching it. And this was the downfall of Roman church. And they said, no, no, we, we're in charge now. You know, talk about a heated debate. Uh, and what we believe in is what stands now. Well, what did they start believing in? Well, they started believing in multitudes of gods. They started believing in, uh, in the distinction between the Father and the Son as distinct people and persons. Uh, and that there's a whole lot of other things that I could go in, into there that without that would be like a two-hour class of the people who started changing the, the landscape of Christianity um, forever, really. And so we see... That within people, that if, especially in history, within people, we have the power to change theology. We have the power to change history. We have the power to, to believe in what's not scriptural and then start teaching what's not scriptural or start believing in what's scriptural and what's orthodox to uh, the word of God and what's orthodox to what Hebrews were teaching back in the day. And what was that? That the Lord was one. Um, and that the one that was coming, the Messiah that was coming down, was going to be the one God who is with us. And understanding who that one God was. Now, the Trinitarian approach is very simple. Basically, the, basically all the Unitarianism is and, and what the Trinitarian um, formula is, it, it's, it's just trying to explain how God revealed himself to us. Okay, it, It's all New Testament. It's all understanding how the New Testament relates to man, okay, and, and how God shows himself. So if I am a Gentile, or I am somebody who does not have the foundation of the Old Testament, because New Testament scholars, serious ones, they will reject the idea that the Trinity was ever taught in the Old Testament. You know, the let us create man in our own image. Um, I actually learned this from a, a, a Trinitarian uh, professor, and uh, he said, he's like, yeah, that's, He's like, it's interpreted wrong in the sense of the reason why it says let us there is because Elohim is plural. There, there's a plurality in it. This is, uh, this is Genesis 126, and there's a couple other ones that say it like this. Uh, but the thing is, is when there is a plurality that is met with a singular verb, the entire sentence is singular. So it's actually singular. And the way that it's translated can be confusing, but this is 
that, that's the reason why it's translated that way, but it's completely singular. It is not exposing the, the Trinitarian theology whatsoever. It's actually more uh, talking about the, the, the sovereignty of God, the oneness of God. And so I was like, how am I learning this from a Trinitarian? Anyways, but it, it was fun. And then, um, and so that, that's actually the, the real answer. If there's other people who say, you know, oh, it's about the heavenly hosts. It's about the, you know, the, um, uh, the royal we. Like I hear all these uh, other explanations. Um, but the, the actual answer is because it's a, even the, the plurality of God is there in Elohim. Uh, because it's um, located with a singular verb, the entire sentence is actually singular. And it doesn't actually prove a Trinitarian theology whatsoever. The us means nothing there. Um, and so that's, that's the real definition of why the us is there. It's actually a singular, singular, uh, verse. So anyways, so how do, how do, uh, Trinitarians view the Bible? How do oneness unit or how do Trinitarians and Unitarians view the Bible? So a Unitarian, we look at the old Testament first as the foundation, right? Deuteronomy six, four, um, all the other ones that I wrote, Isaiah is littered with all kinds of sovereign oneness of God. And we say, we take that and we apply it to the New Testament. So when we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, we say, okay, well, we have to see, we have to take this one God and somehow we have to get it to fit in this mold of who Jesus Christ is um, and how he manifested. Now, a Trinitarian will have a different starting point and because they have a different starting point, they come up with a different conclusion. So they see that the Father, Son, they start with the New Testament. They see the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. They see the distinction, or they don't see them as distinctions. They see them as separation. And because they see separation, just like, hopefully one day I'll be a father, I'll have a son, and I'm, I'm full of a spirit. You know, that, that's, that's distinctions. These are, dis, these are uh, separations. I'm separate from my son, if I had one. And he's his own person. Okay, so in the New Testament, would you see the Father in heaven and you see Jesus on earth as a distinct person? The perception is that they are two distinct persons. Anybody can derive that. I would derive that if I was there, right, in the, in the New Testament. And I was a Gentile and I didn't have any understanding of the Old Testament. That's exactly how I would uh, I would describe it. I'd be like, oh, it's the Son of God and the Father is in heaven. Great stuff. Two dudes. This is cool. So how do I get around that in the New Testament? Well, I have to understand it through the Old Testament, right? There is no Savior besides him. There is no God beside him. So I have to put that into context. There, there is, there is no, if there is someone, he better start explaining himself real quick because it wasn't in the Old Testament. So if you're going to change my theology, you have to explain it in the New Testament of how the theology changed. And that's what we're trying to get to. So... New, the New Testament affirms the numerical oneness of God. So, since there, Romans 3 and 30, since there is one God who will justify the, the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, there is, there is none but one God. Uh, Corinthians uh, 4 and 8. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is the only one. James 2.19, you believe that there is one God, you do it well. Uh, but you have been, 
but you have been anointed by the Holy One. First John 2 and 20. Jesus answered, the most important is what? What is the most important verse? What is the most important uh, law? He said that, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's in Mark 12, 29. And you have to understand that this is, this is Jesus Christ talking. The most important law that there is is that, Jesus, is that there is one God. Now, Jesus could have taken this opportunity to explain that. Because we understand him as, you know, God, as God manifested, manifested in flesh. But notice how the scribe agrees with the words that Jesus says in restating that God is one, that there is, that there is no one beside him. Any attempt to change the word one to mean one in unity instead of numerically is pointless. And Jesus replies to the scribe. Now Jesus saw that he answered wisely and he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. If God is defined as a multiplicity of persons, then Jesus has passed up a superb opportunity to disclose the truth to the scribes. We find instead Jesus Christ agreeing entirely with the word of strict monotheistic theology to the scribe. What is a scribe? Or, or, or he's the scholar of the times. He's the person who writes down the laws. He's, he is someone who is well knowledgeable in what he believes. He knows the first and most important law. So Jesus, if he was saying that, no, now, now let me tell you how it works, okay? Like, I was with the Father in the beginning, so understand that. And that I was with him in creation and that, um, you know, I shared glory with him before the world was. He missed a, an incredible opportunity to explain himself. Uh, Brother uh, David Bernard, our superintendent, speaks to this issue by stating, Certainly our finite minds cannot understand all the things that are known to be about God, which is why we're in the predicament that we're in when it comes to theology about who God is. Um, but... God may transcend human logic, but he never contradicts true logic, nor is he illogical. He emphasizes his oneness so strongly in the Bible that he has dispelled any possible confusion or mystery on this issue. The problem we have, work, the problem we have works itself out in whether or not the Bible expresses to us that the Godhead is so mysterious, uh, mysterious that we cannot grasp it in this lifetime. If this is so, then we should discover scripture supporting this theory, but we actually find the opposite to all humanity and that we are accountable to know him for the knowledge that he has given us through the word of God. So what he says here is that he's given us enough information to say that it's not a huge mystery of who I am and it's not confusing. So... What are some of the scriptures? He says, for since the creation of the word, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in the Godhead, so that we are without excuse to explain the Godhead clearly. If the nature of God, uh, of the Godhead is clearly shown to us, as Romans 1.20 indicates, what is 1.20 said? That he has revealed his nature, the Godhead, to all humanity. What? Because this is the the expressed image of who God is, um, then we have no excuses. The nature of the Godhead is clearly shown to us. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up into glory, 
uh, in the New King James Version, best on the, based on the Texas Receptus, the, the manuscripts, um, and without controversy is the great mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified of the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in the glory. Now to him who is able to establish uh, you accordingly to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept by secret for ages past, but now is manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all nations, leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through who? Through Jesus Christ, being the glory forever. Amen. Romans 16 and 25. If we could all stand, I am out of time. There is a lot more material, um, and I'll just continue the next time. But the oneness of God is one of the most important things that we can understand and study. And the one thing that got me to understand it and to study it more was looking at other religions. Uh, looking, actually studying out what, what other people believe in when it comes to the Godhead. And contrasting it with mine and figuring out why I believe in what I believe in. The, the greatest question I ever asked myself was always, why? Why am I in this faith? Why? There's so many out there. What makes this one different from all the other ones? And asking yourself that question, why does, why does 90, you know, probably about 95% to 98% of the Christian world believe in something different than I believe in. It's really it. And, and it's made me hunt down, and it made me really seek and, uh, and a lot of prayer and, and understanding what I believe in. And so I really have a, uh, a heart and desire to teach foundational things and uh, in order to help somebody who is struggling into understanding what they believe in because it is people are easily persuaded everybody knows somebody who is persuaded away from the truth um everybody knows somebody who fell out of truth everybody um knows somebody who is struggling right now and so i believe clear doctrinal teaching and foundational teaching will help people stay in the church so if we could all just pray real quick mighty god we love you we thank you that we are in truth lord that you that you that you were seeking me out, Lord, that you found me, and that you placed my feet on solid ground. Mighty God, that, that you have given us a truth that we are not supposed to harbor or to keep within us, but a, a truth that we are supposed to tell the world. Oh, Lord Jesus, give us the, the passion and the boldness to, to move where we are, God, to spread this gospel. Oh, in the mighty name of Jesus, in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You guys are free to, um, to, to fellowship among yourselves. Uh, service will be starting in about nine minutes.
so sorry that we are not there.